Great to have you here. Welcome. We're in this series called Shape, and it's in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So I want you to turn your Bible open to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't know how to get there, you can ask a neighbor or look on your phone. There's also Bibles provided for you. I think it's on page 930-something. No, what is it? Anybody know? 937, is that what it is? Okay, great. So, um, the book of 1 Thessalonians, and... I, um, you know, Nate was talking about the adventure at camp. My wife and my son are on that bus, and I was texting back and forth, and, um, and I said, wow, honey, this could be like of all the years that we've done camps, which is a lot of, a lot of years of camps, this could be the very first camp that we've, you've spent the entire camp in a bus. <laughs> she wasn't so, uh, like, encouraged by that, but... Um, they're having a great time, so praise God they got there safely, and I'm sure God has unique things in store for them. If you missed last week, we've just began this series in the book of First Thessalonians, and I'll give you just a brief amount of context so we're all familiar. So the church in Antioch got um, impassioned to make sure that people all over started hearing about Christ and what he had done how his great love can change lives and how remarkable it is that God, the creator of all of us, would come down in human form as an expression, a tangible expression of his love for you and I. Um, And that song we sang about his reckless love is like a wild abandon to pursue us, right? And that he would so demonstrate that through Jesus Um, and draw other people to himself to give us a mission, to give us the opportunity to express that in the lives of other people. And so when God did this, when he took this great step of adventure, the church became passionate that they needed to make disciples all over the place. And so they started sending out teams. This is the second adventure team that went out to church plant. And it includes Paul, and we discovered last week Silas, and Timothy, and Luke, and perhaps others were with them. And in the middle of their ministry going out, they were impressed by the Lord God. We need to go west. God had a plan for them to go westward. And so hearing that really clearly, they take off into Macedonia. And they get to Macedonia, as you remember, they get to Philippi, they plant a church there, and experience like amazingly difficult times. Some of us think, When we start to follow Jesus, it's all going to be cruising from then on. Is that the case? No, it's not. Sometimes it becomes even more difficult, more challenging, because God's calling us out to lean into him and have faith. And that's what happened to Paul and Silas, Timothy, Luke, and the team. And they experience real difficulty. They, They get the snot beat out of them. They get beat up. They get thrown into prison. And then God delivers them. And that's how, in part, that through that experience, God was going to shape the church and this ministry team. Now they end up in um, one of the great metropolises of Macedonia, the leading city in Thessalonica. And they meet people there. They start sharing with them. A church is planted. People come to faith. They start to grow. And uh, 
once again, they face crazy opposition. And the team, the ministry team, has to hit the hills. They have to run out of the city. And before they get caught by this rising riot of people who are opposing the gospel, um, they, when they leave, another group of believers get caught. The book of Acts tells us that Jason and some other believers get dragged before the magistrates. So the church in Thessalonica be, begins with persecution in difficulty, in conflict, and yet they have this passion for the Lord. They, they understand that God can change lives. That's what this series is about. It's, it's speaking about how God shapes us and the tools that he uses. And if you remember last week, if you were here, we talked about four of them. He uses the gospel to shape us, the good news, and we're passionate about that here. The good news that the God who created us, the sovereign, holy, almighty God, would send his son in the flesh so that we might know him and we might experience forgiveness. I pray that that will never grow stale in you. This great good news, because God uses the good news every day of our lives as followers of him to shape us to be people that are passionate about the things that he's passionate about, when we continue to remind ourselves how good it is to be forgiven, that this God pursued us and he loved us so much that he would come and die on the cross for us, to carry our own sin, our wreckage, our baggage, and to deliver us from that, and then rise again on the third day and conquer death. So this is the good news, and it shapes us. Amen? Wow, that was meager, okay? This is the good news, and it shapes us, right? Yeah, that's great. And then, so he uses the gospel, and he uses the Holy Spirit. That is the active presence of God himself inside of every believer. You don't have part of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in you. If you're a follower of Jesus and have come to him by faith, you have all of the Holy Spirit in you. And he is seeking to use you this week to use me and to shape me so that I can be used more effectively. And that's great news, isn't it, ladies, that God is at work in your husbands. Amen to that. And men, that God is at work in your kids. Right? And kids, God's at work in your parents and grandparents by his presence in us, his Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and righteousness that carves out holiness in us when we had nothing to do with it, when he gives us his righteousness, when he leads us in the middle of difficult settings, when he comforts us and encourages us, reminds us to live holy for him. This is his Holy Spirit, and he shapes us by his Holy Spirit. So, but not only by his Spirit and by the gospel, but he also uses this thing that we don't like. He uses suffering. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and the team, they had experienced it. And when they got to Thessalonica, they were looking pretty beat up, I'm sure. And yet they joyfully stepped in. They took the dare and they stepped in and told other people about the Lord, even though they had suffered. And this church, not only did this team suffer, but this church suffered. And God allowed them to walk through that so that they might lean wholly into him, trust him. When God walks you through difficult settings, whether that's your health 
or your employment or your school relationships, whatever it might be. He's allowing you to walk through that suffering so that he might carve on you. He might forge you and shape you. And it can be wonderfully good. Or you can walk away from him because of it. And that's your choice that you make. But God wants to use suffering in your life to shape you. That might not sound like good news. In fact, there are some people who would say to you, would preach to you, that Christianity is about delivering you from all suffering and protecting you and you'll never have a difficult day in your life. What's wrong with that? Well, it's not true, right, in the first place. And second, it can be really discouraging if all of a sudden you feel like, wait a second, I'm suffering. Have I done something? Is that because of sin in my life or am I, am I, is it on me because I'm suffering? And the response is no. God is present with you when you struggle. But every one of us will go through suffering. That's the message, actually. If you read through the New Testament, it's very clear about that. So when you hear people saying, you know, you'll always be delivered if you just have faith, that's a lie. That's not true. So we're carved out, we're, we're shaped and forged by these things, by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, by suffering, and by hope the hope, the confidence we have that God will never leave us, forsake us. God will use us. And not only will he do that presently, but God is sovereign, has this eternal plan for myself and for you. And he is coming back, as we're going to discover many times in the book of 1 Thessalonians, he is coming back for us. The Lord Jesus Christ will come back for those that follow him. And he will save us from the wrath to come from God's judgment on sin. So these four essential forces, they shape us to help us catch the flow of this book. That's what the book is going to help teach us. And the context of this difficulty, this conflict that these believers in, the team writes this letter to the church in Thessalonians. It's only about six months old. Brand new believers who are just trying to figure out how to walk with him and how to understand and have context of what God is doing in their life. And in chapter 2, the first 16 verses, which we're going to read right now, they're going to lay a foundation for what it means to live out our mission. How do you disciple? To every one of us who trust Jesus with our lives, we are given a mission, and that is to go and make disciples. How do you do that? And we're going to get a transparent image of how to do that here in the first 16 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look with me, if you would, please. For you yourselves know, brothers, that's a generic term, by the way, ladies, you're totally included, okay? That our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
so being affectionately desirous of you. We're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as did the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as also to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now let's kind of break down the passage if we could. Think through what the Lord is saying to us this morning. Be sharpened and encouraged, nurtured by the word. The first couple of verses. For you yourself know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but through we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God, which is in the midst of much conflict. So, the team came to Thessalonica, and they start, even though there's been beat up and struggled, they took this great leap of chance. It wasn't really chance, right? But a great leap of faith in God, that God would protect them and care for them, and he'd given them a mission, and they could have given in to fear, couldn't they? I mean, when they followed God, he called them to Macedonia, and the first thing that they experience is, they see a group of believers come in Philippi, and then there's a result of that, of their work, what happens? They get beat up and thrown into prison. They, they leave that city, and they could have gone high-tailed it straight home. But that, that probably would have been my story. Like, I would have been scared to keep going on, but they kept going on, and they got into Thessalonica. And ultimately, they discover much of the same reaction, a group of people that come to faith in Christ, and more opposition. But they decided that there was purpose in this. They weren't doing this in vain. There had actually been fruit. A new church was birthed because of their faithfulness. And they had been treated shamefully and they had suffered. But they were bold. It says in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians that they were in the middle of affliction, but they had the joy of the Holy Spirit. They, they actually found joy in the difficulty, in the middle of the conflict, because they saw God at work, even in the most difficult seasons and experiences. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, it tells us why, because they were seeing people leave idols, false worship, and they were seeing people embrace the true and living God. And when that happens, then it's worth it. So they knew it wasn't in vain what was happening to them. 
So when they enter into this kind of ministry, it was evident that God was using them. And even though that was happening, this team, Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke and the others, they start suffering through false accusations. The people in Thessalonica, when they were after that team, their opponents, the opponents of the gospel, they weren't opposing the doctrine, the truth of the statements that Paul and the team were preaching out. They were making attacks at their character. And so that new believers, um, as they're thinking about what happened in their experience, they had to have had some questions. Like, is any of that real, what we're hearing from these opponents, what they're saying about Paul and Timothy and Silas and the group? So they write this letter back to help them get perspective about what truly happened and how they were going about making disciples. The Paul and team, they were shamed and they were beat up. Yet they did not, they said here in the first couple of verses, they did not give in to their fears. That word that expresses boldness really is to speak without fear, fear to speak fearlessly and to venture, to take the leap. That's what it's saying in the context. And that's what we're called to do. We're taking this intentional risk to take the leap to express our faith to people around us, whether it's at school or work or in our neighborhood. We're called as believers to take those kinds of statements, those kinds of leaps, and help people understand the good news of Christ. And that message of Christian courage and boldness was vital, and it is vital to our discipleship success, to our effectiveness in raising up new believers. Some of you are familiar with uh, George Barna. He's done a series of surveys on American culture, and specifically American culture and the American church today. And he had one that just came out a couple weeks ago some, that really struck me. And one of the things that struck me about this survey is surveyed a broad spectrum of people that claim to follow Jesus. And in that, he gives this, this little nugget. Almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Nearly half of Christian, people who call themselves Christians and are millennials, believe it's wrong to make disciples people from other faiths, to share their faith. Now, I'm not going to jump on millennials because every generation has got messed up stuff about it, right? Yeah, you with me? But it's interesting what's happening in our culture, isn't it? That that amount of people who call themselves followers of Jesus have missed the mission entirely, have just got it wrong. They're not about making disciples. They're about being comfortable and not sharing with people at work, even though they're People at work might be following other gods. Maybe they might be Hindus or Muslims or whatever, and they feel like, well, because that, that person is of a different ethnicity or of a different culture, I should respect them and not share my faith. Listen, those people who are not following Jesus, who have not placed their faith in him, they're going to hell. Can I say it any more clearly? And if you love them, we have an obligation, men and women, to share our faith, to share grace with them, that God loves them and is calling them to himself. Now, that doesn't give you an excuse 
to be offensive. It doesn't give you the right not to respect ethnicities and cultures. Of course you do that. You love people of different ethnicities and cultures and different backgrounds. But don't put the values of culture over what Scripture has called us to clearly do. That's just wrong. So, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're jumping into people, and they're having conversations specifically with people of other faith systems. That's what we found out in chapter 1, verse 9. People who are following other gods, they share the good news with. And those people came to faith. Some of them didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear that part of the gospel is that we are all broken, all sinners, all separated from God because of our own actions. We are depraved at the very core. That's offensive language, right? No one wants to hear it. We don't want to hear we're sinners. That's who we are. We don't want to hear that we really need God and his work and that he has already done something about it. That's difficult to grab hold of, isn't it? That's not the greatest of news, but the great news is that despite that, despite my brokenness and wretchedness, God loves me, and he calls me to himself, and he's done something in human history through his own beloved son to deliver us. That's the good news. Courage in the face of opposition is one of the first character traits of effective disciple-makers courage, the boldness, the willingness, actually, to tell people the good news, to do it with love and compassion, but to help them understand God's plan for them. And it takes courage, especially in our day, when culture and what's PC is going directly against that. For our appeal does not spring, verse 3, from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, did you realize that, by the way? You, personally, if you're a follower of Jesus, have been approved by God and called into this work. God's hand is on you for this work. Just as we have been approved and entrusted, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God's witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So what are they saying here? They're saying, actually, your motives matter. What drives you, it really matters. And my personal motives matter in effective disciple-making. And I love how they just get in this part, they just get transparent with all the things that can take my personal witness and our corporate witness as a church and as churches that follow Jesus, that can take it off the rails, that can really mess things up. And so he lists things here. He, he says misguided belief or error in the ESV. It's the original word plane, and it's interesting where it comes from. It's a root word for planets. And in those days, they thought that planets weren't connected to a solar system that, that revolved around the sun, but they were just kind of wandering around. So the imagery is a belief system that's kind of squirrely. It just believes what I want it to believe at the moment. And it's driven by my own personal preferences. If that's your theology, if it's not rooted and grounded in God's word, and it's just what you want to believe, 
That's error. That will lead you into error, and you cannot disciple people out of that. So Paul and his team said, actually, that's not what was going on with us. We, we were subject to God's word, not our own whims, when we started teaching you and grounding you in your faith. So error or misguided belief can take us sideways. And so can impure motives. Specifically, the wording is referring to a desire for money, sex, or power that can lie behind our advocacy of a belief system. It's important to know ourselves and to be men and women of integrity. My life can speak to other people powerfully, but it's got to be far more than just my words. Now, that's the message here. It, it, it's rooted in my personal integrity. And then he points to be, people being people pleasers, which is one of my own weaknesses, my own personal weaknesses. I want the approval of others. And so sometimes... I can refrain from saying what might sound offensive or be offensive to other people. I want to kind of soft sell the good news of, or what God demands, requires, or calls us to. You ever operate that way when you're trying to raise up people in their faith? That's a danger because that doesn't help them. And Paul said, and team says, that's not what we were about. And we weren't about flattery. We weren't gifted schmoozers. That's not what we were doing. We weren't manipulating people by stroking their egos because actually the gospel is antithetical to vanity. It strips us down. We have to acknowledge our own wreckage and our sinfulness, right? That's, that's what the gospel does. It makes us take a good look in the mirror and then say, you know what? Even though you're wrecked, I love you. And I want you in relationship with me. I want you right. And let's Let's be people who actually are pure and holy and walking totally with God. So, it's not about flattery and it's not about greed, exploiting religion to gain personal wealth. That's been happening from the day religion started. And he's saying, the team is saying, we weren't about greed. It wasn't about any of that for us. And it wasn't about a reputation wasn't about our fame, which can be another call for us to soft sell the good news. But what drove them? What, what drove this team? One thing. They wanted to please God. They woke up in the morning, and they were thinking about it. Now, what would, what would be the most pleasing thing for God today? Think about that for yourself this past week. How much of your life was lived in response to, man, I just want to, I want to delight God today. <laughs> that's what my mission is. And that's what drove their mission, right? They wanted to please God, and in doing so, they realized that they wanted to express the gospel to their friends and raise them up to grow in Christ. They wanted to make disciples, and that's why they made disciples. Even though they were going to go through difficult moments and struggle. So, what drives those who are in disciple-making for the right reasons is a heart to please God above all else. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now he's going to give some illustrations about disciple making. And this first one is using a new mother. 
It's a wonderful imagery of affection and commitment. So um, when we've had our first child, Josh, Sue and I, um, I had this hearing loss. I had been in an accident, and I had lost 90% of my hearing in my right ear. So I discovered, as a new dad, how convenient it is to sleep on my left side, (laughs) right? Then I couldn't hear Josh when he got up in the middle of the night. He was crying or whatever. And Sue, being the natural nurturer, she would jump right on that, wake up, take care of him. And I didn't even know it, right? I was just sleeping away until she would like kick me or something or move me like, hey, come on, you gotta, this is a teamwork thing, you know? Because she had this natural nurturer thing. And that's the imagery, actually, that's being given to us in this text, that we would nurture people. We would We would give ourselves away night and day to the spiritual health and growth of people with great affection. That's what an effective disciple maker does. They give themselves away. They love their disciples, the people in their life that God has given them to raise up, and they do this with this wonderful great affection and commitment. So it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? I was a couple weeks ago. I was at um, Awana, which was one of our ministries here, and I was watching people like get on the ground and share scripture with others and uh, go through their memory verses and stuff. And I was struck again about what a wonderful team of people that we have there. And it's not a, really a, just about the verses; it's about raising up men and women, young kids, to love and follow Jesus. And what the most effective people are doing is expressing their love for those kids what happens in our children's ministry and our student ministry. It's happened in adult ministry. The most effective discipleship happens in the context of loving care, doesn't it? When I know that I'm loved, yeah, I know I can, I can get the theory that God loves me, but when I experience that in relationship with other people, then it makes sense, right? So that's the imagery of a newborn mother caring for their little one. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, verse 9. We work night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Now, specifically, Paul and the team had taken up jobs. They, they were tent-making so they wouldn't be a burden on these brand-new believers. And what they are communicating is that it takes first a commitment to serve people in order to be a great disciple-maker. The great disciple-making requires a commitment to serve regardless of what you'll get back. You you don't think about what you're going to get in return when you love on people that you're raising up in the faith. You just serve because you know that's what God has called you to. Again, if you approach ministry to get something out of it for yourself, you're starting at the wrong place. We serve because God's called us and because he's loved us first. Your witnesses, verse 10, and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you to, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. But first of all, they say, look at our lives. Remember how we lived among you. Think about the integrity that we had. It wasn't just words that captivated these people to follow Jesus. It was a kind of life that was lived by the team among them. Integrity really matters when I disciple people. They're going to look at me. 
They're going to look at my life to see whether my words square up with my actions. Whether your words square up with your actions as a follower of Jesus. That's how they're going to know. So great disciple makers emphasize personal holiness. They look, they examine, and they know if you're walking with the Lord, it'll make a difference. The people you go to school with or that you're working with, and it'll give you entry to those people's lives so that you can invest in them and encourage them in the faith. Integrity matters. And then first we had this mother's example, and now he talks about the dad's example. And he gives it in reference to kind of what a coach does right? To call out the very best in people and to do that by exhorting and challenging and encouraging. I know some of you people here I know have been coaches in the past. That is that, that, that role that invests. Yeah, you love them, but it's, it's about doing all you can to call it out in them so that they would excel. And that's what disciple making is about too. Me calling you out, you calling other people out, you calling me out to follow Jesus with everything, and you will exhort, as it says, encourage, challenge for this to happen. That we, with integrity, call people like a coach to be followers of Jesus and to model it for them, to demonstrate how that happens, and then to not be satisfied with anything but the very best in each other. That's the role that we play as disciple makers with one another, to call each other to walk with the Lord faithfully. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word, verse 13, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is what transforms. It's not someone's personality or the giftedness, What transforms is God's word. That's why we're so committed to it here. That's why you you just spent 30 minutes thinking about God's word this morning, because it transforms you. That's why we do it in our life groups, and we do it in every setting in our children's and student ministry and adult ministries, why God's word matters so much to us, because this is what God uses to shape you, to move you, to make you into the kind of disciple maker he is calling you to be. Great disciple makers understand that it is the word of God that works in people to bring transformation, to bring change. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same kind of things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. You guys, you're connected. It's not just about you in Thessalonica, is it? It's about you and your connection to the church all over. For them, in a different, way different region, different place in Jerusalem. For us, it's about our connection to believers all over the Tri-Cities and all over the Bay Area. We are connected. It's not just about us. It's about the kingdom of God. And so think about this. We, we learn and we are challenged and encouraged by other believers. That's what he's calling them back to. You guys are connected to the church in Jerusalem because we make disciples not just personally, But corporately, we do this together. I can't make disciples as a lone ranger, and neither can you. We do this in partnership. We do it together. We do it together with each other. Other people here in this church, we're doing it as a team, making disciples. 
And not only that, but we're doing it in combination, in connection with churches in this area. I get together every week with a group of pastors in this area, and we pray for the health and strength of every church to make disciples and to thrive. We're, we're, that's what we're committed to, and we're committed to that as a church and as a people of God. Together, we make disciples. For you suffer the same kind of things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. We're alike in our experience. We've suffered together. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Look at Jesus himself suffered. So what makes you think that you're not going to suffer too? We're in this together, it says. When the Thessalonians, they chose to follow Jesus, they became part of a bigger company of people. When you chose to follow Jesus, you became part of a company, an army of God that seeks to make disciples. And here's the good news. This is his church, the Lord Jesus' church. And this is his mission. And he wants to do it in and through you. And he's going to be successful at it. The passage here gets at the heart of our calling as followers of Jesus. And it helps us understand some of the key areas how to be a great disciple maker. First, to have the courage to speak the good news. Second, to have right motives, to check our motives that we are seeking to live to please God. And, and third, like a, like a young mother, to have the affection and commitment to people around us that we're discipling that would express itself with great affection. And then have a dedication to serve, to put their interests before us. To have the kind of personal holiness, the integrity that disciple-making requires to speak out as a coach, challenging, encouraging, exhorting people, and then have a commitment to God's word is central to that tool we're going to use in the lives of each other. My prayer is this week, God uses you and these qualities powerfully to make disciples, to invest your life in the things that matter for eternity, for the sake of the people that God has placed in our lives for the sake of his kingdom. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this good word, for the challenge of it, for the nurture of it. And we need you. We need you to be at work in us so that we might be effective at this great mission you've given us to make disciples. And all God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.